Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It looks like we're recording. Oh no. Oh no, that oh. means that means the show starts. Oh dear. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me for this episode is Scott's wife and this week's fill-in co-host, Joanna Hemingway. Say hello, Joanna. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. So you want to replace Scott full time or Absolutely. He's ab- you don't need him. You've got me. There you go. You don't need him. <laughs> The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Thanks to Krista from the 36 Times podcast for reading our disclaimer this week. You can find Lily and Krista, our friends from Nova Scotia, and their podcast at 36times.podbean.com. Yes, thank you very much. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not ex- we're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. This is episode 72. Congratulations, episode 72. You guys are doing a fantastic job. I think we are. There's a little bug in here that's flying around, tickling my arms. A reminder for those of you planning on going to CrimeCon but have yet to buy tickets, if you want 10% off your ticket, use our promo code POUTINE19, that's POUTINE and 19 at checkout when buying your tickets on the CrimeCon.com site. On with the show. On with the show. Let's do it, Mike. Let's do it. On Sunday, December 8th, 2013, at 7.25 a.m., the 16-member volunteer fire department in Castor, Alberta, was called into action. They responded to a major structure fire at the residence at 38021 Range Road 132 in Painters County, Alberta, just over 12 kilometers away. The firemen had to drive carefully, but as quickly as they could, on the frozen roads. The Alberta winter was in full effect with the temperature hovering between minus 26 and minus 30 degrees Celsius. And with the wind chill across and with the wind chill across the prairies, the temperature had fallen to a horrific minus 40 degrees. I'm not sure if I could ever live in Alberta. It's just so cold. Just for that particular just for reason. That part, only for that particular reason. Yeah. I spent a winter in Newfoundland and that was enough. Newfoundland gets pretty darn cold too. Yeah, absolutely. As the fire trucks came within view of the residence, first responders noticed it was fully engulfed in flames and almost already burned to the ground. It was clear right away to the firefighters that this was no ordinary fire. A neighbor called the fire department, seeing the blaze from his own property. Oh, okay. 
It wasn't the family who lived in the residence who called. Oh, okay. The family dog, a chocolate lab named Keela, lay 30 feet from the home, dead from what looked like a single bullet wound to the head. A small amount of blood was present in the snow, as were two spent brass 9mm bullet casings. That's awful. You don't have to kill the dog. No. Six feet from the door of the house was a red plastic jerry can that had been warped from the heat of the fire. It was three quarters full of what would later turn out to be high-performance aviation fuel. There was no sign of the family who lived in the home. The home belonged to cattle farmer Gordon Klaus and his wife Sandra. The couple lived in the house alone, but on weekends their 39-year-old daughter Monica, who'd worked and lived in Stettler, would visit and stay over Friday and Saturday nights. Yep, I do that too, or I used to. As a farming family, they were typically up and around at this time of day, regardless of the time of year. There was work that needed doing. For them not to be out and about was odd. Okay, that's, yeah, that is suspicious. A white pickup truck belonging to Gordon was missing. Were they away at the time? Everyone hoped so. There was no way anyone could have survived such an intense blaze. Oh, this doesn't sound very good. RCMP arrived quickly from the four-man Castor satellite office. Due to the visual evidence already available, the dead dog, empty bullet casings, and a gas can, the fire was clearly of suspicious origin. It was decided that the best course of events would be to let it burn itself out. The reasoning behind this was the need for an immediate investigation. Had the fire department fought the blaze with water, the brutal Alberta winter would have quickly frozen everything under a thick sheet of ice until spring, making an expeditious investigation impossible. I guess you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, really, because if you Mm -hmm. put it out with water, you have to wait forever. And if you don't put it out, then everything could be gone. Right. It's awful. Yes. As the fire burned, the RCMP constable on the scene, Diana Stratton, snapped photos of what was now just a concrete foundation full of burning debris. I just, yeah, that's awful. I just can't even imagine. The Klaus's eldest son, Jason, lived in a trailer on the Klaus land, a three-minute drive down a long access road. The property was massive, at least 14 quarter sections that had been in the family since Gordon's parents, Martha and John, began farming it in the 1940s. Wouldn't you hear a fire from that far away? Like You would think, or see it. Yeah, but, or smell it. You know, it. it was first thing in the morning, I guess. Yeah, if you're a heavy sleeper. And just an aside, a quarter section is 160 acres, so their farm was over 2,000 acres. And if it's a three-minute drive by car to the house on the other end of the property, it's quite quite a drive few kilometers. I guess so, yeah. There's a wonderfully written investigative piece by journalist Jana G. Pruden. She penned for the Globe and Mail called After the Fire, Murder, Lies, and a Missing Deer Head. A missing deer head? Yeah, you'll learn more about that later. Okay. I relied on Jana's work in my research in parts as well as extensive reporting from other sources and detailed court documents. According to Jana's article, Jason got a phone call from a friend and neighbor named Jeff first thing in the morning notifying him of the fire at his parents' home. Quote, The house is burned to the ground, Jeff said when Jason answered the phone. Where are your mom and dad? They're there. They're in the house, Jason told him. They didn't go nowhere and Monica was there too. End quote. Does he sound upset? Jason showed up soon after the phone call, having to be restrained at the end of the driveway by firefighters as he fought to get closer to the scene. Okay, so he was upset. 
Or acting upset. Or acting upset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too much law and order. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for the fire to cool so they could get into the charred remains of the home to look for bodies, RCMP began looking around the yard for evidence, taking note of the gas can, dead dog bullets, and blood drops in the snow. Initial indications were that there were, in fact, human remains among the ruins of the Klaus farmhouse. I guess there wouldn't be that much left over after a huge fire. No. No, not much. As Castor was just a satellite RCMP office, two days after the fire, Jason was brought into the larger detachment in Coronation, Alberta, about 40 minutes away from the Klaus property. Okay. Jason was questioned by RCMP Sergeant Rob Crop about what he thought might have gone on. According to Jana Pruden's article, Sergeant Crop asked Jason if there was anything he wanted to know. Jason asked if all the vehicles were in the yard. That's weird. Yes. In fact, as mentioned before, the white GMC Sierra was missing. Jason went on to ask whether investigators had figured out what had caused the blaze. I mean, it's two days later. Yeah, that's a normal question, you would think. What, sure. What caused it? Was it the coal furnace that had caused the fire, he asked? Or was there foul play? Jason was the first to broach the subject in the interview. Why would you ask that question? Unless that's a great question. Suspicious. He went on to say that no one in the family had any enemies at all. Okay, well, he's piquing my interest here. I'm, I'm not trusting Jason at all at this point. Here's some audio from Jason's first interview with the RCMP. And the only reason I'm thinking it's foul play is because of what was inside the house, which was a deer head of mine, that was worth a lot of money. Like we're talking around the two hundred thousand. Like it was a it was a real big big deer head. Like it was one of the biggest ones around. Like it was you know not far from the world record kind of deer head. And that's the only thing I can think of that somebody would come in to steal or try to steal. But I don't know if that stuff burns in the fire. I don't know if there'll be proof of antlers. I don't know. After speculating about motive, Jason went into how he felt about his family. You know, you can ask all my friends, you can ask any of my ex-girlfriends that I, my biggest fear was to go in this world without dad in it. You know, he was my best friend. He was my best friend and everything. And, and, and to go without him and my mom. My mom was my best friend too, and so was my sister. We were a tight family, very tight, and just to see them, to have them not here, not here with me. It, it, I'm so sad, I'm so sad, and, and I'm so angry too, I'm so... We had plans, so many plans that we are going to do. You know, Monica was going to take me to her Christmas party next week, where she worked. And we had tickets to concerts, to a, to that peak concert in January. And, you know, Dad and I had stuff planned to buy cattle back. And, you know, it's not just, they're not just people that I, I get to see once a year at Christmas time, or, or once a year for a birthday, or, or, or a weekend holiday this is these are people that i grew up with my whole life and they're my they're my best friends they're all my best friends you know yeah we may have bunted heads the odd time but that happens with that happens and no 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 why they were taken away from me i'll never understand it i'll never understand it and even when i do get answers i'm still not going to understand it 
So what do you think of Jason so far? He sounds extremely scripted. He's practiced that. Interesting. Yeah, that's the way that it comes off to me. He's practiced that. He, those are my best friends. I loved my family. They're my best friends. Mm-hmm. They're my best friends. I. It sounds very scripted. Okay. Interesting. Three days after the fire, an investigator arrived with a sniffer dog. Joby, an eight-year-old black Labrador retriever, went to work. From court documents, quote, The presence of either an accelerant or body remains, or both, was found in nine locations in the basement of the house and seven locations outside of the house. The nine locations in the house included four locations where body parts were detected, though three were in close proximity to each other and were from one body. Two sets of human remains were seized from the fire debris. One set belonged to Gordon Klaus, and the other set belonged to Monica Klaus. The remains of Sandra Klaus were never located or identified. End quote. So what did the killer do with the bodies? That just seems... Well, where were Sandy's remains? Some believe that the intensity of the fire in the area where Sandy would have been completely destroyed her body. Okay. Which is possible. I guess so, yeah. There wouldn't be anything left, not even teeth. Apparently not. Who could have done such a horrible thing to this hardworking family and why? The suspicious son? <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps. The same day that Joby the Lab was doing her thing, RCMP found Gordon Klaus's white GMC Sierra abandoned at the intersection of Highway 36 and Township Road 400, close to the Alliance Ski Hill. Okay. Early on, obviously, as we've already established, suspicion fell on Jason Klaus as a person of interest in what had happened at the Klaus farmhouse. Jason kept saying he was sure Sandy was in the house when it burned. Okay, so he's absolutely sure that all of his family members were in that burning house? That's what he's saying. Even though he was asleep three-minute drive away? I guess so. Okay. His behavior and how he was talking about what happened was really odd. He seemed to know things before the police as he was, quote, speculating about what happened. Well, yeah, he seems to be pointing the police in specific directions. The deer head, it could have been the deer head. Mm -hmm. my, my family had no enemies. I don't know who could have done this. The trailer that Jason lived in was given to him by his parents in return for work on the farm. Jason was also paid an allowance and all his bills were taken care of. Well, that sounds not that bad at all. Not that bad. He'd never worked much and held a job with a trucking firm only briefly in Castor. His whole life, he said, was with his parents, and that's pretty accurate. Well, I mean, even if they're jerks, then they're still supporting their... They're still yeah. taking care of them. I mean, if you can't be a functioning member of society, then, you know, someone's taking care of you, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. People in the small community of Castor, whose population is just under a 1,000 began talking to police who were asking a lot of questions about the Klaus family. Jason's name came up a lot, and not in good ways. Jason was rumored in many news articles to have been a regular cocaine user and even a dealer. Okay, I'm going to stop you there. I know this is a side note, but I just don't understand people who do cocaine. Yes? I just, like, you're you're just ruining your your septum. Oh, just people uh, snorting cocaine is just like yeah. unfathomable why you would actually want to do that. I'm sorry. Please continue. So you probably see that stuff in uh, there. I work in an ear, nose, throat clinic. And when the referrals come in and I see another cocaine user who swears they don't do it anymore, but they've got no septum left. Yeah. And you see them. Yeah. And you're like, you. It's got to be horrible. Why? Cocaine is a hell of a drug, as oh, yeah. uh, Rick James said. Yeah. 
It's also rumored that Jason and his dad would argue lots, often, about money. At some point, early in the investigation, Jason was interviewed again by police who came right out asking him if he'd killed his parents. Here's some more audio from that particular interview. All right. Did you kill Gord, Sandy, Monica Close? No, I did not. And I would gladly take a lie detector test, and I, would not, I did not kill them. I did not start the fire. I don't know how they got killed or had murdered or anything else. Should I believe you? I would hope you would believe me. Yes, you should believe me. Yes. And for someone to accuse me of that, uh, it doesn't make me mad. It, it doesn't make me sad. It just it, it hurts. It, you know, it would it really... No. And, and the reporter asked me that, too. And no. It had nothing to do with this fire or whatever, however they died. Being murdered, being stabbed, being whatever they were. I don't know. I don't know how they died yet. I don't know if they felt the fire. I don't know. Give me one reason why I should believe you. One reason to believe me because I lived for that family farm. Okay? I've been there 38 years on that farm. I had breakfast, dinner, supper. Yeah, Dad and I would bunt heads once in a while. Mom and I would bunt heads once in a while. Monica and I, she always looked up for my girlfriend. She would never want, like any of my girlfriends. But there was never a time where I would not want them in my life uh, for any reason. Like that, that, uh, I know that's a question you have to ask me, but. Jason, if what you just told me right now is the um, truth, if what you just told me is the truth. Could you, could you, okay, go ahead. You have nothing to worry about. Could you kill your parents? If what you told me is the truth, you have nothing to worry about. I don't have nothing to worry about, and I don't. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't believe him. No? I'm still, you you're know not, what? You're not buying what he's it's selling. so scripted. If you were distraught that your family just died in a horrible fire. He sounds very cool for... He sound, yeah, he, the, there's no tremor in his voice. Mm-hmm. He's flat. He's completely lying. I don't believe him. He gets emotional when it seems to be like it's an appropriate Yeah, yeah, I'm talking, to... I'm talking, I'm talking. No, I'm upset, and now I'm talking, I'm talking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't believe you, Jason. I'm sorry. The Klaus family released an obituary on December 11, 2013 in the Stetler Independent. Beside a picture of the three Klaus family members who died in the fire is a brief write-up about each, Gordon, Sandra, and Monica. About Gordon Douglas Klaus. His parents were Martha and John Klaus. He attended school in Castor, grades 1 through 11, and he took his final year at Lindsay Thurber Composite High School in Red Deer. Gordon was a great athlete and played a variety of sports during his school years. Sandy and Gordon were high school sweethearts. They were blessed with their first daughter, Lisa Marie, on March 19, 1971. Sandra and Gordon were married on April 28, 1972. They began their married life together, living in the family farm and farmed together with Gordon's parents. They were blessed with their second daughter, Monica Dale, on May 29, 1973. On October 8, 1973, they lost their precious Lisa in a tragic farm accident. Shortly after that, they moved to another farm site where they have lived all these years. Gordon had a passion for hunting and enjoyed fishing. He was a real prankster as well. He had the best sense of humor and loved to laugh. 
Two families continued to farm together for many years until John's health required him to retire, following which Gordon's family carried on. Sandy and Gordon were very active Kinnett and Kinsman members and developed a group of very close friends. They became godparents to one niece and one nephew. Sandy and Gordon were Martha and John's major caregivers and took excellent care of them during their golden years. Do you notice something is missing? Well, Jason's not exactly mentioned in here and they seem like they were really outgoing active people caring community members community members yep. and took yeah. care of family took, took care, care of friends of other people yeah absolutely yep. yeah and i love pranksters yeah I really do me too and i am one me uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> i know you are interesting that jason's not mentioned there yeah he's not mentioned in his mother's obituary at all either okay here's hers she was the oldest of six children raised on a farm north of Halkirk by Big Knife Park. Throughout her youthful years, she was a fun, spirited daughter that loved to seek adventure and excitement playing with cousins on the country gra gravel pit and hay, and hay bales. After attending high school in Castor and Stetler, Sandy worked at Alberta Government Telephones as an operator and then worked at Alberta School Hospital in Red Deer. The rest of Sandy's obituary goes on to match a lot of what was said in Gordon's. No mention of Jason. That's just, yeah, suspicious. I don't know if it's suspicious or did the family who wrote this not want him included for some reason that they suspected him? Probably. I'm thinking, I suspect him. About Monica, she was the second oldest of three children, so they mention that there are three. Okay. Belonging to Gordon and Sandy Klaus. Monica was raised on the family farm and attended school in Castor. Throughout her childhood years, she was mild-mannered and pleasant little girl and was very active in sports, including pitching for the girls' baseball team and figure skating. They sound like awful people. I would not want to know them. They, no. They're just terrible. She became a paralegal after she attended the Red Deer College. Deadbeat. and Yeah, deadbeat. And she worked at a law office for a time, and then her most recent employer was Vortex in Stetler. And her boss and the rest of the folks there really loved her. But again, no mention of Jason. It talks about how she loved photography, her little dog, mm -hmm. Patches. Patches. But no mention of an, of an older brother. A lot of other names appear in the section below telling who they're survived by, but Jason Klaus does not appear at all, and the only mention of him is their son and brother. Well, it seems like somebody Angry wanted player. to, yeah, leave him out on purpose. Yep. Yep. For sure. Jason's weird behavior continued in the weeks after the fire. He began to talk about being visited by Jason's weird behavior continued in the weeks after the fire. He began to talk about being visited by spirits oh. who were telling him about what had gone on in his parents' home the morning of the fire. Sounds like somebody might be having a break with reality. Or spewing bullshit to cover up the triple murder of his family and later arson of the family home. He chatted with family, friends, and even Monica's boss, Brady Flett, CEO of Vortex, who would later assist RCMP with their investigation. According to court documents, the spirits told Jason that they'd seen him distraught at the end of the driveway when he arrived on December 8th as the fire burned. The spirits knew the identities of the persons responsible for the murder of Jason's family. 
They told Jason he should just take care of the farm and they would handle the rest. Well, that sounds really convenient. Those spirits were very helpful. Very, very helpful spirits, yes. The spirits had a lot of information, actually. Details changed as Jason shared with each person, though. You know, when you start telling lies and spinning webs, it just gets hard to keep track of where you're supposed to be going with your story. Yes, it definitely does. The general gist is that the spirits claim the murderer entered through the laneway of the property. The person shot Keela as he walked toward the house, so away goes the dog. Mm -hmm. The murderer shot Monica in the head when she sat up in bed startled. Okay. Gordon was shot in the head as he came out of his bedroom to investigate the noise. Okay. Monica was still moving, so required a second bullet in the head. Okay. Sandra was then executed the same way. In bed? In bed. Okay. The shooter then put gasoline all over the six tons of coal that was in the basement and set the whole thing ablaze before escaping. Okay, so that would be the reason why it would be a massive fire. Yes, because six. there was it was coal heated. Okay, six tons of coal in the basement. Yeah. yeah. The spirits said that a 9mm pistol was used in the crime and had been thrown into a river. Quote, the spirits told Jason their troubles were in the river. This is all from actual court documents. Okay, so this is the story that he's telling. Family and friends and his sister's boss. So it makes me wonder, is this actually the events that took place? And he's just trying to spin it that someone else has done this and the spirits have told him? He definitely has more information than he should at this point. Police weren't sharing how his family had died and the fact that he was talking about them being shot threw up a bunch of red flags. Jason also gave a description of the murderer to these people, saying a man with nine letters in his name was responsible, but refused to talk to police about his visions when asked. He claimed he didn't want to be locked up as a crazy person. Okay, so yeah, I'm completely on board with the suspicion. I'm not getting off that boat yet. Well, Brady Flett who was the CEO of Vortex, was on your track here. Okay. He wasn't buying the bullshit that Jason was selling. Okay. Flett agreed to act as police agent and spoke to Jason numerous times while wearing a wire over the next two years. Yeah, if you really believe that someone is guilty, you're going to put everything into it. Yeah. Good so for you, Brady Flett. Flett was behaving with Jason like he believed wholeheartedly that his dead relatives and other spirits were talking with him. Okay. Flett told Jason he wanted to help him solve the crime. Mm -hmm. Well, he... Really... Like O.J. is out looking for his the killers of uh, Nicole Brown and, and Ron Goldman. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a bit of evidentiary audio from Jana Pruden's article in which you can hear Brady Flett and Jason talking about the case and what the spirits had told Jason. Let's hear it. Man, there's Monica's talk to you. Your dad has talked to you. That lady in Drayton has talked to you. And this black woman has really filled you in with a whole lot of unanswered questions. Did this guy go to... Did this guy go with the intent to kill your family? He had a gun, or was it a gun that, you, he, that he got from your house? Oh, no, it was his own. Uh, he did go there with intent. But I think he went there just to make sure he was going to get away with that deer head. The deer head again. Yeah. 
That deer head. <laughs> Damn deer head. Brady stuck with the operation, talking to Jason numerous times over the ensuing months. Standing in the charred foundation of the Klaus family home, Brady even watched Jason reenact what the spirits had told him were the chronological events in the crime. Jason held his finger out like a gun, pointing to where each had been shot. That, yeah, suspicious, Jason. Jason also told Flett that his sister Monica had not only been talking with him, she'd been sending him text messages from beyond the grave. I think someone needs to just come clean, because dead people don't text. Dead people don't text. Monica told Jason that it was his friend Joshua Frank who'd murdered the family. There were nine letters in that name, Joshua Frank. Jason said this was no coincidence. Oh, you've got ten. I'm sorry, you're out of the... You're out, you've got ten letters in your name. I'm sorry, Mike. Oh, there you go. But as Flett implored Jason to go to police with the information, again he refused. Jason said that Joshua would lie and entangle him somehow in the crime. Jason, I think you're um, handling that well enough on your own. The name Joshua Frank began to come up a lot. Yes. Police decided that with Brady Flett's help, they'd expand their operation. Jason seemed to be talking to Flett, although a lot of what he said was bullshit. But bullshit was better than nothing. Yes. Sounds like a lot of bullshit to me. <laughs> it is a load of it. Just the fact that he thought he was smarter than everybody else and was getting away with this, telling these stories is unbelievable. Jason had a ton of information that he just shouldn't have. Only the killer would have that Only information. Only murderers know Or all somebody the who knew, yeah. Yep. The RCMP went to one of their most infamous tactics to try and get more information or an admission. Oh, you're talking about a Mr. Big Sting? Enter the Mr. Big Sting. Oh, okay, okay. Around June of 2014, six months after the death of Sandra and Gordon and Monica, enter Mr. Big. Mr. Big. I'm not sure how people still fall for this, but it seems like it's such a long and subtle operation that a perpetrator is in far over their head before they kind of realize what's going on. Well, you would think that if someone's trying to find you guilty, that they would try and do it as fast as possible. And someone's not just going to be your friend and listen to you and agree with you and take that on for a, an extended period of time. There so you, go. you kind of let your guard down and bring them in and trust them, Mr. Big. Fair enough. For those of you who are not familiar with the Mr. Big technique, it's not the chocolate bar, although I love those. Mm, so yummy. Here's a description of, of the Mr. Big technique from a recent Canadian court case. Quote, the Mr. Big technique is a Canadian invention. Although a version of the technique appears to have been used by the police as far back as 1901, its modern use began in the 1990s and has continued since then. The technique tends to follow a similar script for each use. Undercover officers conduct surveillance on a suspect in order to gain information about his or her habits and circumstances. Next, they approach the suspect and attempt to cultivate a relationship. The suspect and the undercover officers socialize and begin to work together, and the suspect is introduced to the idea that the officers work for a criminal organization that is run by their boss, Mr. Big. Mm -hmm. The suspect works for the criminal organization and is assigned simple and apparently illegal tasks, serving as lookout, delivering packages, or counting large sums of money are common examples. As occurred in this case, this stage of the operation can last for several months. Yeah, you've got to gain their trust. Exactly. 
nothing's going on. You're just working for us. Yeah, we're helping make you. Making a little money on the side. Exactly. We're bringing you in, part of the family. So You're over, one of us. Yep. So over time, through being paid by the organization for these few quote illegal tasks, the target comes to trust the undercover operators. Mm-hmm. Once the stage is set. The operation culminates in a meeting akin to a job interview between the suspect and Mr. Big. Invariably, during these meetings, Mr. Big expresses concern about the suspect's criminal past and the particular crime under investigation by police. Okay. As the meeting unfolds, it becomes clear that confessing to the crime provides a ticket into the criminal organization and safety from the police. Suspects may be told that Mr. Big has conclusive evidence of their guilt and that denying the offense will be seen as a proof of a lack of trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. In another variation, suspects are told that Mr. Big has learned from contacts within the police that a prosecution for the offense is imminent based on new evidence. Okay. So they're scaring them a little bit. Yeah. The organization offers to protect the target through a variety of means by offering to eliminate a witness or by having someone else confess to the crime. If the suspect confesses to Mr. Big, then gotcha. Yeah, well, it sounds like a good sting. It is a good sting, I think. Yeah. As of 2014, the claim is that there have been no wrongful convictions in the history of Canada using the Mr. Big sting. Well, if it works, it works, right? For those of you who've seen Confession Tapes series on Netflix, have you seen that one? I, no. Okay, I know Scott probably has. Oh, he's he... watched every confession, murder, mystery <laughs> yep. thing that is ever on Netflix. So are you familiar with uh, the Raffae family murders uh, uh, committed by uh, apparently Sebastian Burns and Atif Raffae in Washington? It's, you know, it rings a bell. They were from bell. North Van. Yeah, no, it rings a bell. Okay. Anyway, in the confession tapes, they show the Mr. Big technique being employed against these young guys, and that's how they obtain a confession from them that Burns and Raffae killed the Raffae family. Okay. And some of what has been claimed in the documentary is refuted on the BCRCMP's website in a Q&A about the technique, because some people think that the Mr. Big scenario is actually illegal in the United States, and it's not. Okay. Quote, And this is question. Use of the Mr. Big scenario is not allowed in the United States or the United Kingdom. Why are Canadian police allowed to use this type of investigation technique? Because we're smart. Well, the answer is, on the contrary, evidence has been collected by the RCMP through the major crime homicide technique in both the United States and the UK. In addition, police agencies in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and in some European countries also use this technique. Well, it works. Exactly. So watch out, criminals in other countries. The Canadian technique might be coming for you, and it doesn't have a double-double in an Nanaimo bar with it. Oh, dear. It just has a jail cell. Just a jail cell at the end of it. Um, The popular uh, culture of the Mounties motto has been, we always get our man, and so you've been warned. You have been warned, criminals. In 75% of the Mr. Big cases, someone is either cleared or charged with a crime. Okay. That's a pretty good... Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if you didn't do it, if they think you did it and they pulled this sting on you and you're just like, no, I didn't do it. I'm not going to do these illegal things for you. Yeah. Then they'll move on. 95% of those charged are eventually convicted. Yep. 
So one can see why it's such a popular investigative tool. Again, it works. And as far as the remaining 75, uh, remaining 25%, those cases just go unsolved. So That's unfortunate, but it does happen. Yeah, or maybe they're solved by another means. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully. All, all murders are solved. The RCMP's targets in this case were going to be, obviously, Jason Klaus. No. And Joshua Frank. Oh, no. Okay. Over the next year, throughout a number of meetings in a textbook application of the Mr. Big technique, police obtained what they believed to be the true version of events okay. in the deaths of Monica, Sandra, and Gordon Klaus. Okay. Both Jason Klaus and Joshua Frank sang like songbirds. Okay, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Okay. They were both involved in the murders of Jason's family up to their eyeballs. Well, that, you know, I'm not surprised. Jason was pissed off with his dad, Gordon. Okay. Gordon was not sharing as much money with Jason as he felt entitled to. Well, go get a job. Exactly. Also, his cocaine and other party habits required more than the stipend he was being given in return for his work on the farm. But here's what the stipend was. For the month of November of 2013, the last month that his father was alive, Jason was paid $6,500 for his work on the farm. you got to be kidding me. That, that is on top of the bills and the... the so that's, that's his take-home. That's his take-home $6,500 is nothing to scoff at. That's, I, I would be Especially so you're a Especially you're a single man. Yeah, no kids. Live, living all by yourself on a, in a trailer that's paid for. No wife. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't like you, Jason. I don't like you at all. At some point, Jason acted on his anger and began to forge checks from the family farm's account to the tune of thousands of dollars as late as December 5th, 2013, only days before the murders. I just rolled my eyes. I'm sorry. I know you couldn't see that, but I'm just getting really angry at this guy because I I'm sorry, Mike, but like... No, you go ahead. Dude, $6,500, you're doing almost nothing to, to earn that. You're doing diddly. And it's not enough for you. And now you're forging checks. And people like that, like, I understand if you can't hold down a job because you've got anger issues, but take that $6,500 and go get some therapy. Get get a job. You can get a good therapist for like 150 a week. I know. It, you know, oh gosh. I work so hard and then someone like this comes along and they're yeah. handed so much. Yeah. And it's still not enough. If the accounting is accurate, Jason Ford checks for the total sum of $18,875. Okay, so when you do that, you're going to just bankrupt everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Jason's fear of being caught would have been a big motivator in his crimes, as well as his resentment and desire to have the whole family business and property to himself. The Klaus family was in Jason's way. So after he gets rid of all of them, who's going to do all the work? Because he didn't do... Well, he might just sell it eventually. Oh, I guess so. Just make the money and go snort some more cocaine. As he was, quote, grieving his sister, he even took her truck and modified it. Oh. To, into something that he liked. Oh, yeah. well. Jason had been hanging around caster native Joshua Frank since he was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And Joshua is now 28. Okay. So the two regularly drank and did drugs together. Awesome. But Jason's like 10 years older, so he was like, 20, 24 or something when okay, he's hanging so, around this kid. Yeah, just a bad influence. Weird. Sorry, I would not have liked someone like that in person. Well, no. <laughs> okay, you just showed me a picture. No, you... No, thank you. <laughs> no, he's a galoot. Yeah. And I'm not saying all galoots are murderers, but this particular galoot is one. Yeah, no. Just a no, thank you. Around the time of the murders, Joshua Frank was not having much success in his life. He was living rent-free in the manager's apartment at the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Castor. And as far as I can tell, the Cosmopolitan Hotel is not very cosmopolitan. Okay, so it's just a name. 
the single Yelp review for the Cosmopolitan from Mr. P from Castor gives the bar one star, calling it, quote, a hellhole. Okay. Saying, quote, Turkish prisons have cozier accommodations and more respectable clientele. Okay. End quote. <laughs> the other creative descriptions of the place, the writer clearly did not enjoy what he saw. Okay. So this guy, how is he living rent-free? On the kindness of the manager who was uh, who ran the hotel. Okay. So another freeloader. Yep. Okay. Joshua wasn't working due to a tendonitis issue, and his elbow and arm were in a sling. Okay. Yeah. It was an excuse he'd use later to deny responsibility for the murders. He was living, eating, drinking, and drugging fully on the kindness of others. So like you mentioned, he was a freeloader. Yeah, upstanding citizen. That sounds very like a nice life. In the fall of 2013, Joshua Frank and Jason Klaus were drinking together when Jason made a proposal. He wanted Joshua to take out his family for $50,000. Although Jason would later say the amount he offered was between ten and $20,000 in a used truck. Okay, used truck. Regardless, he was contracting the murder of his own family. Jason told Joshua that he knew his dad was going to find the money was missing when he made a planned cattle purchase. Jason admitted to stealing from the family business using forged checks. He told Joshua they had to act fast, otherwise he'd be caught. Joshua Frank was to go into the home, murder Jason's family, and burn the house down and lam it in the farm truck to a predetermined spot where the truck would be dumped and Jason would drive Josh back into town. Okay. Joshua agreed and Jason gave him a 9mm Ruger pistol that night to seal the deal. I knew it all along. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty obvious all Yeah, along. I'm sorry, But Jason. these, a lot of times these guys think they're so smart and they're getting away with it. And all the cops really need is some good evidence. And these twits gave it all to the police anyway. Yeah, they, the police just need to let them talk. Exactly, and that's what happened. Yeah. The pair met on December 7, 2013. They were drinking at the bar in the Cosmopolitan with two girlfriends. These guys have girlfriends? Apparently. Okay. When the ladies left them alone for a moment, Jason let Joshua know that this was the night to act on the plan. Jason and Joshua left the Cosmopolitan separately to draw suspicion away from themselves. Mm -hmm. Jason picked up Joshua a few blocks away, and Joshua had the handgun with him. Josh had used gloves when he was handling and loading the gun, so he, he didn't want to leave fingerprints. They drove to the house, and Joshua got out of the truck and Jason said, do what you gotta do. Do what you gotta do. From court documents, Mr. Frank, that's Joshua, grabbed the house keys from the location told to him by Mr. Klaus. He did not need them, though, as the house was unlocked. Mr. Frank opened the door, and the dog, Keela, ran out. Mr. Frank went into Gordon and Sandra's room, turned on the lights, and shot each of them in the head. He then went into Monica's room. She had begun to sit up and speak, Mr. Frank shot her in the head as well. He then shot each of them once again to ensure that they were dead. Sorry, no, that's just awful. Joshua then retrieved the gas can from the shed and poured gas throughout the house upstairs and in the basement, making a line down to where the can was eventually found by police in front of the house. As he came out of the house, the dog, Keela, charged Joshua. This is when he shot at her twice. The first bullet missed, and the second one killed her. Mm. 
That poor dog. I know. The dog didn't do anything other no. than try to protect her yeah. family. After dispatching the dog, Joshua lit the blaze with his lighter. He left quickly because he panicked that a neighbor may have overheard the gunshots. Joshua unplugged the farm truck's block heater and drove it to the location where Jason was waiting for him. Again from court documents. He followed Mr. Klaus about 27 kilometers to the Valley Ski Hill near the intersection of Highway 36 and Township Road 400. He left the truck there, threw the keys in the ditch, and got into the Suburban with Mr. Klaus. They drove back toward Castor, and Mr. Klaus dropped off Mr. Frank about a mile and a half from Castor. He walked home to the Cosmopolitan Hotel. They didn't want to be seen together. No. The next day, Mr. Frank took the gun and threw it, together with the ammunition and gloves, into the Battle River along Highway 855 at Big Knife Provincial Park. That section of the river was not frozen, as it was near a power plant. Well, it sounds like the spirits knew exactly they what were the story bang was. on they about were bang on, yeah. Those amazing spirits. During the sting, cops captured video and audio of Joshua and Jason owning up to the murder. Here's some chilling audio of Joshua Frank cavalierly telling Mr. Big about his involvement in the murders. I don't know if I want to hear this. You're gonna. No, I'm gonna. So would it be safe to say you're a stone-cold killer? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what was in your head? What were you thinking? Well, I'm just, this is just me now talking. I'm just, I couldn't believe, what have I got myself into now? And it's like, well, come back out. Well, it had to be quick, right? With three. Well, you were smart turning the light on, see, you know, shoot out in the dark. So they wouldn't even have known what hit them. No. That's just, why I wanted, I didn't want them to know what hit them. Like, uh, I'm not, I'm not a well, I guess I kind of am. Now. Do you feel remorseful? A little bit. Just a little? Yeah. Do you think they got what they deserved? I know Gordon did. I think Sandy didn't, but... So there you have it. There is uh, Joshua Frank talking, frankly, about murder. Wow. I, I don't think that Gordon deserved it. No. I really don't. I don't either. No matter how, if he was mean or stingy or whatever, which he clearly wasn't. Yeah, no, definitely not at all. I, d I don't think anybody deserves to die like that. No. Joshua and Jason were arrested in August of 2015 and charged with arson and three counts of first-degree murder. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. As criminals tend to do, they recanted everything they'd told Mr. Biggest lies and turned on each other, pointing a finger at the other guy as the killer. Joshua even went so far as testifying that he'd been molested by Jason when he was only 14. Oh, Jason himself claimed Joshua was the mastermind and that he was afraid of him. Okay, so point the fingers at each other. Yeah. yeah. It was Jason's blood that they'd found at the crime scene. Interestingly, he'd helped to recover the key to the truck in a ditch that summer with the undercover operatives nearby. Okay. Joshua had led them to the murder weapon. These guys are... Yeah. Yeah, these guys... Joshua pointed, Still. saying it's going to be there. Yeah. So RCMP divers found it there. Yeah. And they're caught in the middle of the Mr. Big sting, being told to be honest with Mr. Big so he could help them. So they were. Ultimately, they had sunk themselves. During the trial, the court sorted through the bullshit, and the two were both convicted of the crimes and sentenced to serve life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Good. The Crown sought to upgrade their life terms, wanting them to run consecutively, making the pair ineligible for parole for 75 years. I agree with that. The concurrency of their life sentences were upheld, though, in a later hearing. Oh, well. 
Judge Eric Macklin said that Jason and Joshua would be more likely to find remorse and be rehabilitated if they were not, quote, bereft of hope. So, okay, what about the poor people who are dead? They're not coming back? They're bereft of hope. They're bereft of hope. Uh, They're bereft of I'm life. I'm sorry, if, if you do these kind of heinous crimes, then you're, you're not worthy no. of hope. I'm calling it right now. I don't think that these two are going to get out anytime soon. No, definitely not. Multiple murderers in Canada tend to stay behind bars. Only a little remorseful. That's what he said. Only a little remorseful. Are remorse. you remorseful? Are you sorry you did it? Only a little. He's only a little. Only a little. Just about Sandy, really. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, maybe Monica, too. They but... didn't mention Monica, which no. is strange. But, of course, Jason, when he went to jail, he continues to maintain his innocence. Of course. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Maybe the spirits will come back and uh, have him redeemed. It could be. New evidence. New evidence. New evidence. From the spirits. From the spirit world. So there you go. That's your first episode of Dark Poutine. Oh, thank sitting you. in the, the co-host chair. Thank you for having me. At least we had a Hemingway here. So it was, you know, half of Scott, I guess. Half of Scott. Well, well actually, you, you contributed quite a bit. And Scott usually is a hum hummer and a har. Well, I think we're going to have to do some editing too, though. <laughs> well, there's always editing. There's always editing. There's always okay. editing. But, just be nice. But I, reviews, I will. Just, I will no, totally not, be not nice. you. Oh. The listeners, just okay. be nice, please. <laughs> be, nice be nice to Joanna. Please. It's I her do. very first podcast. I have so. sensitives. I have sensitives. She, yes, she has sensitives, and she is, uh, as she mentioned in the live show, a hermit. Yes, yes. So don't be mean to hermits. Don't be mean to me. No, Joanna is a hermit. Don't be mean to hermits. Yep. She doesn't have the big beard that hermits sometimes I've have. I've been trying for ages. I cannot grow hair. It just won't grow. It just, I can't grow hair. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's on my head, and there you that's go. pretty much it. Well, you're lucky that it's on your head. I know a lot of guys who would who would love to have some hair still on their heads. <laughs> Scott seems to be losing a bit. Oh, we're not going there. He gets mad about that. We're not going there. My love, I love you. <laughs> Since the moment I saw your shining face and your head full of hair. I fell blonde. in love with you. His blonde hair. <laughs> He's a good man. He is a good man. He's so funny. Before we go, we want to give some shout outs to our new Patreon patrons. And so typically what we do when we give shout outs, Scott will say thank you after I say the person's name or thanks or whatever. Okay. And the people who we don't know where they're from, we usually make a little something up about them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Go so, ahead. Thank you this week to Lois Kelly from Slapton, Great Britain. And that, I've never heard of Slapton. I don't I have, know where it is. It's in Great Britain, Mike. But I did, it is somewhere where I'd love to go. I want to visit Great Britain. Apparently, I have uh, family genes in the UK, according to 23andMe. And, and now you've got a new friend in Lois. Exactly. Thank Lois, you. we're coming to visit. Thank you, Lois. <laughs> from Slapton. From Slapton. And Steph, Annie. She's from Anniesburg. Where, where's Annisburg? What? It's in Stefland. Oh, interesting. Yep. And what do you think she does with herself? She is a cattle farmer. We had cattle farmers on the show this week, so oh, that's interesting. Okay, so she's a cattle farmer, but they're all just like pristine white cattle. I, I'm not sure. Maybe they're called... Oh, but they're the woolly cattle yes. that, that you actually get wool from. Yes, and so, she, she bathes them and brushes them mm. and feeds them beer, much like Kobe beef. Oh, interesting. Except we don't eat them because they're just, cattle, they're just, just drunk and beautiful cattle. <laughs> just wandering about. Yes. Zach Bolesky from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Thank you. 
The, Zach. Yep, the mosquitoes will be there for you soon, I'm Mosquito- sure, Zach. Oh, <laughs> no mosquitoes. Angela Andrews from Sherwood Park, Alberta, and Alberta. I believe that is right outside Edmonton, if I'm correct. You know, I know my uh, provinces, and I know where... Alberta's Alber- right next door. Yes, yes it is. I've never been there. I've flown over it. Have, you have never been to Alberta? I have been to Toronto. I have you been and to Scott St. have St. not John's, been many places. I've been here. I've been to New York. You've been to Newfoundland. I, yes. Have you been to Nova Scotia? No. 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 Wow. No, I'm not a huge traveler. I like, I'm a hermit. There you I, go. People frighten me. <laughs> they really do. Well, now you'll be more frightened after this episode. Okay. Where where the frightening things that we talked about. Uh, Mimi Pelletier from... Hometown, Toronto. Toronto, Ontario. You don't that say is, it Toronto. You say it Toronto. Toronto. That is your hometown, Toronto. I was born in Toronto. I lived at uh, Coxwell and Girard. There you go. Uh, Rhodes Avenue. We actually went to the same school as the twins from Degrassi. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so my sister has uh, in her class photo, she's got the twins in there. Oh, that's cool. So we lived like, like Degrassi a, Junior High, the the original. The original, yeah, like yeah. the first edition of it. That's yeah, cool. They, the twins were, we have a picture of them. And we lived probably like a 10, 15 minute walk away from Degrassi. Oh, cool. Yeah. Right downtown. Neat. Pammy B from Lakeland, Florida. Hello, Pammy. What do you do for a living? Pammy B. Pammy B. I think she makes cheese. She must. She must make cheese. Charity Hope. Is she from Hope? Uh, I don't know, but Charity Hope sounds like a very giving name to tell you the truth. She's a wonderful person. Thank you for giving to us. Yes. Thank you so much, Charity. You've Uh, given us so much hope. (laughs) There you go. Thank you for your charity. Thank you. And for your hope. And for your hope. (laughs) Did I ever, I don't think I've ever told you this. I used to work at, uh, as a security guard, this is a short story. Uh, and I was mobile security. And one night I had a guy who was riding with me and he was a big ex-Marine who had fought in Vietnam. So okay. big, gruff gentleman. His name was Robert, and he talked like this. Hey, Mikey, how you doing? Okay. But uh, we were driving around Vancouver, and he said, just stop by these little old ladies here by the by the, the uh, corner here. And I thought, okay, what's he going to do? Ooh. He rolls down the windows, and he says, hey, excuse me. And they look to see this gruff-looking man. Absolutely frightened out of their yep. minds. And he goes, is this the road to hope? <laughs> I've not heard that one before. No. Is this the road is, to hope? Is this the road to hope? What are you, some kind of jackass? <laughs> that's You're a going tr- the wrong way. <laughs> that's a true story. <laughs> uh, Brooke Deschamps, she is uh, one of our Yumber Yarders, and I'm not sure where she's from, but uh, I imagine there's a Brooke there. Uh, yeah, Because well, that's where she is. Or that sounds like a French name. Could be. So maybe she's from France. And she... Where they wear no underpants. Oh my goodness. French underwear? I want a pair of those one one of these days. French underpants. Scott, if you're listening, you better damn well listen to the show. <laughs> he uh, will. He will. He promised. Your wife wants French underpants. Well, they're like the ones that the ladies from Downton Abbey wore. Have you ever watched Downton Abbey? No, I don't think I you have. Might. I've watched you it have? through. Yes, twice. Oh my. Me too. I Scott love will. Downton Abbey. Scott is happy that it's no longer on Netflix. I'm devastated. Oh, it's coming back on something else. Oh, I don't know, but my mother has it on DVD. It's I, great. I am rescued, but yeah, I love that show. I, I like it too. Scott hates it. Well, Scott, you I've have made, no class. He, he watched it because he was in the room. There you go. <laughs> Where are we? 
Carrie Kowalik from Lazo, BC, and I thought it was Laszlo, so I had to look it up. But Lazo is uh, close, uh, I believe it's on the island, close to Comox. I don't know. I know where BC is. Yeah. In Vancouver and Surrey, but I, I don't know. Sean Choquette. And uh, Sean, uh, her the icon looks like uh, Sean is a, a person of the female persuasion, but I don't want to assume any genders. Okay, we'll just say hello. Thank you, hello Sean. Hello and thank you, yeah. Sean. Choquette, that's a fantastic It name. is another French name. Choquette. A John Rigaldo, and this guy came in at double prime minister level. This is the first time we've had anybody donate to the show. Like prime minister level is $25 a month. This guy came in and donated $50 a month. You So I, I guess we have to crown him the emperor. Our new emperor. The emperor. Yes, thank John you. John Rigaldo. John Rigaldo, thank you. Thank you. Catherine Clayton from Washington, Utah. So I guess there's more than one Washington in the United States? Uh, there's Washington State and Washington, D.C. There's lots of Washington. Washington, yeah. yeah. But Catherine Lake Clayton, Washington. that sounds like a femme fatale movie star name oh, totally from the could be. 20s. Oh, very good. Yes. yes. Uh, maybe maybe a little later, maybe something more film noir. Yeah, could be. Anybody who's watching any movies from back then. Um, there's so a... she's starring with Hedy Lamarr. And <laughs> there's a good movie. Uh, I'm going to watch it again soon. It's called The Cotton Club. Good movie. Uh, have you seen it? Yes. Oh, I love that movie. I remember <laughs> watching that movie as a young kid, and I stole it from my mother's house recently. Don't tell her. And I'm going to watch that. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. Along with uh, Harlem Nights. Harlem Nights with Eddie Murphy. and With uh, Eddie Murphy. And Red Fox. Red Fox. Yeah. Della Reese. Wow. Shut off my damn pinky toe. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to make a hand sandwich. <laughs> oh, no, it was tuna. Tuna. Swallowing myself a glass of orange juice, and you just left a swallow in the container. Just a, what a jackass putting that back in the fridge. Who would put that back in the fridge with just a swallow in the container? <laughs> Thank you to Kelly McCumber from Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Lorena Arkestein from High Level, Alberta. Hello, Lorena. That's an interesting name. Arcus, I like the word Arkestein or Arkestein. David Basso from Trail, BC. Trail, David. You know where that is. Thank you. Kelsey from Belleville, Illinois. Illinois. Thank you, Kelsey. Amber Lamb from Marysville, Washington. Marysville. She's like a beautiful little lamb. Yeah. Yeah. Lamb is yummy. I, say, <laughs> no. I had lamb burgers last week. Sorry, Amber. I was once working in a restaurant in Toronto, and my boss said, we're putting lamb burgers on the uh, menu today. And... For the life of me, I couldn't figure out what a Lamberger was. I was like, is that some sort of cheese? What What's a Lamberger? And she kept saying, it's Lamberger. Lamb burger. And it got to the point where she said, Lamb burger. Go write it down. And yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm always the smartest in the world. Always. Aaron Croft from Cambridge, Ontario. Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. There Thank you. you. Aaron. So thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money at PayPal via our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And we did get some donut money this week. I love donuts. Alice Turner. Thanks, Alice. Thank you. Elizabeth Maroney. Thank you. And Chris Hodgson, who was... In our live show, oh. there for our live show, I said, you're going to hear us say hello. So she, she's hearing us. Hello, hello, Chris. 
<sighs> yeah. Let out a deep breath. <sighs> if you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. Uh, you can easily find us on iTunes, Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or a like on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Join us in our closed Facebook groups, the Yumber Yard, the Barnyard, uh, the uh, Yarn yarn Barn or whatever. Craft Barn. Craft Barn. Oh, I, I named love, it. I love those places. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah. There's so many crafty people. Yeah. I'm super jealous of all of those jackasses out there who can paint. Yeah. Well, why don't you start? And Just, I can't. I get. I simply can't do oh, it. Oh, you can't. I have no talent whatsoever you take for some drawing. classes or get Scott's mom to teach you. No talent. What? My sister's an animator. Yeah. I have zero talent. She stole it all. There you go. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Thank you, Joanna, for joining me. Thank you for having me. There you go. Night, night, folks. Good night. Bye. Bye.